The issues of large-scale structural racism, they, they just pervade all parts of society. They pervade the food and hospitality and media world. And these problems are never going to be solved within a generation. But, but the work I do, I, I do it for the next generation. You know, I do it to make things easier for them, to make the burden lighter, to make the barriers smaller. For many people in Australia, the pandemic started about a year ago, last March. But for Chinese Australians and other Asian communities in Australia, the impacts of the pandemic were felt much earlier. As soon as words started coming out about a virus that originated in China's Hubei province, people avoided Asian restaurants, Chinatowns emptied out, and anti-Asian anti anti racism surged. It was ugly and upsetting, and of course, deeply unfair. But discrimination against Asians in Australia isn't at all new, and it comes in forms that are both explicit, systemic, careless, and ignorant. All of them can be hurtful and damaging. As part of a series of discussions about anti-Asian racism, we're speaking today to Yvonne C. Lam to unpick and unpack some of these issues. Yvonne is digital editor of Gourmet Traveller magazine and a founding member of Diversity in Food Media, which we'll hear more about during this episode. I admire her journalism greatly, and I'm delighted to have her on the show. Welcome, Yvonne. Oh, wow. Thanks, Annie. What an, what an intro. And so lovely <laughs> to hear it read from such a respected journalist like you. Thank you so much. Uh, well, thank you. Um, please start by telling us a bit about yourself, your career, and of course, your interest in food. <laughs> um, I don't have the most conventional road to food writing, but I don't think anyone really does. I started um, actually doing a classical music degree, as many food writers do. <laughs> um, and But while I was doing that and after I graduated from that, I always had nurtured and harnessed this interest in food, whether it be cooking it myself or eating it out and also reading it a lot, so consumption in many sense of the, senses of the word. And I just tried writing. I contacted um, an online publication who had done this call out for new writers. Uh, I think I wrote about the 10 best brunches in Sydney or one of those listicles. And f I realized I had a knack for it. Um, got really good feedback from the editor of this publication. And from there, the work just kind of grew and grew. Um, I, my name just started going, getting out to different editors or I would contact them there directly. I'd um, be given more and more assignments about to write about new restaurants around Sydney. Um, there was one really formative moment where I noticed on Broadsheet Sydney, the editor at the time was a woman called Sarah Norris. And I was like, huh, Sarah Norris, why does that name ring a bell? And I realized it was back in high school. I did work experience at a little street music um, publication called Drum Media. And Sarah was the editor at the time. And I just emailed her out of the blue and said, hey, I don't know if you remember me, but I did work experience back with you back about 10 years ago. And it would be cool to write for Broadsheet if you'll have me. And she was like, oh, yeah, I remember you. Because that week she had, she, she had been, that week she had been moving house and had come across a, a box of things. And in one of them 
was a picture of me and her together back in, you know, the early or late to mid 2000s. Wow. Me with a really, yeah, me with a really, really, really ugly haircut. Um, Sarah just trying to dress in peak mid 2000s garb. We were standing <laughs> underneath a poster of Eskimo Joe, which is also peak mid 2000s music. And I remember this photo so vividly because at Drum Media, I took my work experience very, very seriously. And on the last of my, the last week, the last day of my work experience there, I behaved like I'd been at the newspaper, at, I'd been at the publication for years. And I went around taking photos of everyone who I'd worked with that week. Love it. And I printed that, <laughs> I printed that photo and gave it to Sarah. She remembered me 10, 15 years down the track and invited me to write more for broadsheets. So I think the lesson here is to, for any aspiring food writers is take photos of the people you work with <laughs> and print it to them, print it and send it to them because they might remember you later. Yeah. Um, and then from I mean, the Guru and I got invited to, um, you know, I got I applied for the job at Goldman Traveler as di- its digital editor and here I am. I think that's great. And I think, you know, a great lesson in that for, aspiring writers but I guess aspiring anybody is just to do it and to reach out to people and mm-hmm. yeah uh yeah it's really it's really great I love that um what instrument uh what's your instrument <laughs> so I'm a I'm a percussionist and a drummer wow so, yeah I uh I play drums currently in a band called dragon fruit which the other half of dragon fruit is another excellent musician and also a food writer called colin ho um and when i was at uni studying percussion i played all the instruments of the percussion section of the orchestra as a lot of classical musicians do so played the big timpani you play snare drum you would have lessons on how to play a tambourine and a triangle properly because there is actually a very refined technique to doing it. So, and none of that comes in handy for being a food writer. I can tell you that. <laughs> I'm sure there's something that comes in handy. I don't know what it could be. Now, my brother and sister are both percussionists, so I feel very aligned with your journey. <laughs> I know, really. Wow. Yeah. Um, so I grew up uh, in, a, in a very mu- musical household and I just hacked away at, you know, various instruments. But my brother and sister, um, yeah, certainly took it further. And yeah, they're both professional musicians and um, yeah, and play drums and percussion. So I wow. think, yes, it, they're, I think the percussionists are, have to be so incredibly versatile um, and <laughs> be able to, I think also the way that, uh, that independent rhythm that um, that drummers aspire to, where you know your your hands and your feet can be doing completely different things. I feel like that is <laughs> incredibly good for the brain. So I'm sure you've got a lot of that kind of stuff. And I guess maybe you know when you're situated at the back of an orchestra, you have this real knack for observing the behaviours of other people and how they interact with each other. And I guess maybe that comes into that, that helps when you're interviewing a person and kind of observing a situation around you. You notice the little, the little ticks and quirks in people, which is, right. There's going to be any handiness to being percussionist in my current industry. Maybe that's it. <laughs> yeah. I think that's great. <laughs> um, so we're chatting this week about anti Asian racism. And I mean, there are so many 
things about even saying that where I sort of have to half catch myself. I mean, one thing is I'm very conscious that Asia is not a monolith. I think there are 48 countries in Asia, hundreds of languages, you know, that it's a nonsense to say Chinese food. You know, this whole discussion seems quite flattening and yet I do think it's important to have it um, but at the same time as thinking it's important to air these issues and confront them, I'm also really conscious of not wanting to put the weight of the conversation and all the explaining on people who are of Asian background. Um, and I, <laughs> as I say that and then ask you what your thoughts are on this and whether you're sick of quote unquote doing the work, I, I feel like I'm doing exactly what I've said I want to be really cautious about. And yet here we are. <laughs> I think, I think there's a fine line, right? And I think about this, I think about this a lot. I think a lot about representation and about burden and about labor when it comes to issues of racism. Um, I remember reading about Rennie Edo Lodge, who's an incredible black British writer. And in 2017, she wrote a book called Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. Um, she talks in this, it's this brilliant book where she writes about the deep, deep racism and the history of Britain. So that was back in 2017. And since then, with um, the Black Lives Matter of 2020, and I guess this, um, this louder discussion that's been having that's been had in the public discourse about racism and what that means. She's actually given very few interviews to media outlets since. And she says, because everything she said in the book still applies. And I think about this a lot. Um, I also think about when we're having these conversations about race and racism, in what ways can we talk about it without perpetuating it? Uh, because when, when I read media and when I and when I write stories where food and race intersect, as a person of Chinese and Vietnamese descent, I think it's really important to not indulge in this weird like oppression porn, where people of color and writers of color feel this burden to talk about you know, their worst racist experience they've ever had just for the white gaze or just for the performance for the benefit of a white audience. So so when I ask when I get asked whether I'm sick of doing the work, sometimes, sometimes, um, I think about doing it in the most efficient way. Um and that means I've given up on expending my energy on really small, futile, everyday arguments. So, you know, that means I'm not arguing with distant relatives over the Christmas table <laughs> anymore about racism. Um, the reasons for those are twofold. That, one, there's a huge indignity about having to prove over and over again that you're human, uh, that as an Asian Australian you're human, um, that First Nations people are human, that queer people are humans. It's incredibly humiliating. It's, no one no one should have to beg a white person 
for them to be seen as as a living being. And the other reason I don't indulge in those everyday futile conversations is because ultimately it's, it's it's really tiring. I've got other shit to do in my life, you know. I I have books to read. I have uh, washing to do. I have runs to jog out. Uh, I don't think about race all the time. I think about it a lot, but it's not the it's not the sum of my being. But then I think also about, and I'm especially mindful that in food media, there are so, so few writers of colour in Australia, right? And though I'm not, and I'm not the gatekeeper for the Australian, I'm not the gatekeeper for the Asian Australian community um, or for food writers of colour. But I guess in the past 12 months, I have written works that have made an impact, which is, you know, for a person like myself who's just is so uh, who does doesn't embrace the spotlight. It's been it's been really strange to realize that people um, associate my work with something that's important and worthy of discussion. It's extremely humbling. It's also very strange. Um, so I'm aware that my my words now have an impact and they have an audience. So in that sense, I'm, I'm happy to do the work. I'm happy to discuss my thoughts at times of my choosing. If it means that another writer of colour reads my words or hears my interviews and thinks, hey, I'm not crazy, like, I feel this too, these words that she's writing or that she's speaking really resonate with my experiences. And I want to be part of this movement because the issues of large-scale structural racism, they, they just pervade all parts of society. They pervade the food and hospitality and media world. And these problems are never going to be solved within a generation. But but the work I do, I, I do it for the next generation. You know, I do it to make things easier for them to make the burden lighter, to make the barriers smaller. So when people ask me, am I sick of doing the work? I say, I do it because I want to make it better for the next generation. Yeah, well, that's that's really, I don't know, it's gracious and generous and powerful and, yeah, obviously incredibly well thought through. Um, so I'm really grateful that you are having this conversation with me and um yeah I, I have no doubt that the work that you do and the fact that it's you that is doing it uh will have and are having a really big mm. impact thanks yeah and i think it's also when i talked about efficiency earlier before i'm also mindful that with gourmet traveler i have a national platform with this podcast i have a national platform and it's just a matter of using as few words as possible to make an impact and reaching the most people. And if it, even if it doesn't change people's minds, you just really hope that sometime down the track, like those words kind of like echo in their heads a little bit and they're like, oh, that thing I heard on Danny's podcast that thing I read in Gourmet Traveller, like that I hadn't really entertained those thoughts before, that maybe it will kind of spark that thinking. 
And I said, there was a really interesting conversation I had uh, a couple of months ago um, with a story I wrote about, about restaurant names. And it was kind of a work in progress story at that point that I was writing for Gourmet Traveler, a really big feature about uh, restaurant names that were potentially racist and problematic. And I met this woman at a party. Um, she was, she asked me what I, what I did and what I was working on. I was like, well, you know, I'm a food writer. I'm working on this story about racist restaurant names, which is not exactly light party conversation starter. She was a white woman in her, in her forties. And I use an example of a, of a restaurant that had a racist name and she was like, Oh, I, I actually think that's a really funny name. And I was like, okay, well, I'm not like, it's a bit tiring to have to explain why it's racist. And also like we're in this party, this some cool kind of music playing and I'm, I'm hard of hearing it as it is. I'm not going to have to like shout about racism to you. But then in the same conversation, my friend entered and she's a, incredible writer and in, in the fiction world and she, at that time she was working on a play about western sydney she mentioned it to this white woman about this play she was working on and she said oh you know it's about western sydney it's about how people of color live their lives in western sydney and their stories and experiences and even though my friend hadn't mentioned race this woman through her filter that was new to her was like oh like Oh, in in the past fifteen minutes, the both of you have talked about race, and I've never thought about race before. And I was, I felt, I felt extremely uncomfortable that she she had pointed that out. But I also felt quite a little bit gratified because it was the first time that this woman had had the issue like the conversation about race cross her everyday life and even then at that point I hadn't I hadn't turned her it wasn't my responsibility to it wasn't the time to do it I just hope she walked away from that and was like oh racism huh that's a the real thing <laughs> it's gonna take a bit, few more steps for her to get there but it's just about that spark you know for a lot of people but also for Asian Australians, for a lot of people of colour, they're beyond the spark and they just want to hear more of it in the media. They want to read more about it in the media. They want to see more representation of themselves in the media. Yeah, I think everyone starts in a different place and I guess, you know, everybody grows up in in different scenarios and is exposed to different things and, of course, some people try to expose themselves to more than other people. Um, but I think that is, it is so interesting. It's, it's hard to imagine that woman um, walking out of that party and not encountering more conversations and prompts to consider racism. I think it's, you know, when you learn a new word, you, you hear that word everywhere. And I feel like once you're tuned in or you allow yourself to tune in to um yeah problems around representation and racism and the way that language is used and the way that race and power intersect it, the i mean the privilege of not having to think about racism is enormous so it, it's um yeah it, and I, I guess you know simply you know it's it's uh that 
idea of people people can't be what they don't see and I guess um I'm sh- yeah it's like I guess you are doing a lot of work simply by being in the role that you are as you say um and yeah hopefully it's just that role does a lot of the work for you the platform and the role and it doesn't have to be constantly exhausting for you as a person as well um yeah, well, I mean, I love that article about Asian restaurant names and I'm not surprised to hear that, you know, it it was something that you worked on for a really long time. Um, and, you know, I have to say, you know, I'm, a, I'm from a previous generation of writers to you and I really welcome um, welcome your voice. And I think, you know, I, I there as you, as you say, there are too few diverse voices in Australian food media and I think Australian food media is definitely due for a reckoning and you know I, I put myself in that I think some of the 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 um some of I think some of my words in the past have been careless and I think um I yeah but I guess hopefully I'm open to learning and doing better and um yeah I just I really welcome the opportunity to to do better and to learn more and, and to keep learning. But- yeah, and I think with the, the, the issues of of, of racism and, and writing and food media is that no one's ever perfect. Like I've definitely made missteps in the past, and I think it's just really important for readers and fellow writers to also be forgiving when these transgressions occur. Uh, you know, cancel culture is never really a fun thing. And I think um, people's worldviews and the the style in which they write about certain stories change as the conversations change. You know, things that I would have written about maybe five years ago, ten years ago, you know, I've most likely called an Asian restaurant cheap and cheerful in the past, which now I realise is kind of really uh, like a, quite a pejorative term to use but unfortunately like you said before like you only you only know what you see and I think it's incumbent upon food writers in Australia like when there is a change there is a change coming so what are you going to do now to make sure you don't create further harm with your words and what are you going to do from your position of privilege to lift other writers other chefs, other restaurants that don't come from such a privileged background. And I'm wary of myself that a lot of discussions about race don't really touch on issues of class as well because I'm, I'm from the middle class myself. Um, I'm very lucky to have two lovely, amazing parents who provided for me all the way from when I was a kid to to my education. I was lucky enough to go to university. But as a result, that language that I've absorbed through tertiary education and through the the literature I read now, that kind of puts me in a camp where sometimes the work I read, the work I write is not super accessible to people who didn't have the benefit of a sound education. I think about that, but then at the same time, when I when I was writing this story about racist restaurants, when I was about, about why authentic, like concepts of authenticity and cheap and cheap Asian restaurants, talking with my parents who were refugees of Vietnam who had an interrupted education, didn't go to university, 
and I was I was a bit hesitant about discussing it with them because I was like, oh, how much would they? They they they're quite liberal minded for their generation, but I was a bit hesitant about whether and and, and you know English is they they're very fluent in they're fluent in English. It's also their fifth language, you know. So I was yeah, hesitant wow. about how much my yeah right. So I was hesitant about how much my expression would have an impact on them. And I was like, hey, mum and dad, I'm writing about, you know, racist restaurant names. And I'm also writing about how cheap and cheerful was kind of a messed up concept. And they're like, yeah, totally. Yeah, that's really messed up. So I think there's also like, there's that, like, like, no, my parents didn't get an, like a tertiary education, but these issues of race, they totally get it. They totally get it in food. And I think we just need to be mindful of the deep intersectional issues about race, class, gender, all of it, right? We're just all on this like learning trajectory about making it better for the next generation. Yeah, absolutely. And I I mean, yeah, to pick out race is in a sense quite flattening as well. It's as, um, it is, we are all more than one thing and it's, I think sometimes the language I think can uh, clarify feelings that people haven't had words for in the past. And, you know, I think about something like microaggressions and to me, you know, I, I didn't, you know, I've, I've heard that word, I didn't know what it meant, but as soon as you sort of have it explained to you and have some context put around it, I think it really lets a lot of pennies drop and you, and it's can, you know, explain, this is why I feel so tired. This is why I don't want to go out. You know, this is, this is why this just makes me feel bad in some way that I haven't been able to quite explain before. So I think putting these sort of frameworks around, around it, which can seem, I guess, you know, academic or, um, privileged to have the way to have these ways of describing things, it can, I mean, if, if someone's already feeling it, like you, like your parents, I mean, it doesn't, yeah, they're going to understand it. Yeah, I think intuition is such a strong thing as well. Like if something's not sitting right, it probably isn't. And then and then you back that up. Like I remember returning also back to Rennie Edo Lodge. She's a essayist and a, the, the essayist and the journalist. You know, she has these deep-seated feelings about racism and its existence in, in the UK. But being a journalist, she backs that up with evidence. Like all her all her work has like some solid research and reading and and interviews in there. And I mean, I feel I've, I'm not comparing myself to her, but I think you know that's just what you do as a writer. You twinge on something, you feel it in the community that you operate, and then you test your hypothesis. You're like, is this what other people are feeling? Who are the who are the experts in this field? Who are the grassroots people who who could also be feeling this and what are their feelings? And that's definitely the approach I've taken with a few stories, well, you know, all the stories I've written, but particularly the big capital R race pieces I've written for Gourmet Traveller recently, like that need and that, solidness in your research has to be there yeah yeah you've got to be able to you've got to be able to back it up and you've yeah you've got to be able to I guess point to the facts that support your um 
yeah, support your uh, support your argument. Yeah. yeah, back yourself up. Put all your like year five debating skills to excellent use. Drag that out again. <laughs> Um, do you want to just talk a little bit in detail about the racist restaurant name story just for people who haven't um, read it and we will put a link to it, but uh, just talk about, about talk, talk, just tell us a little bit about it. Uh, so it was a story that I wrote and was published in February in Gourmet Traveller. It's a story that had been sitting in my mind for a really long time as, you know, as a food writer, you're no Danny, you get, press releases that flood your inbox every day and I there were a couple that passed my way where I was like hmm this is really really weird there's a restaurant called some young guys spelt s-u-m-y-u-n-g-g-u-y-s and it's kind of hard to explain on a podcast but Essentially, the, the, the stylizing of the spelling and of the logo and of, of the restaurant, which is, an, is a Southeast Asian fusion restaurant in Queensland, is done in a way where it conveys general Asian-ness. And I thought it was really, it was really strange. And at the same time, another press release passed my inbox that was called Madame Nhu which is a, a Vietnamese restaurant owned and operated um, by a Vietnamese owner. And I know that from what I knew of my scarce knowledge of his, history in the 60s is that Madame Nhu was a really contentious figure in Vietnamese history. And I was like, oh, why did both these restaurants name their restaurants such? And kind of started exploring like a restaurant name says a lot about what a restaurant wants to be, who it's trying to appeal to and what it's standing for. So I kind of explored like some young guys, what's the go? Why why choose such problematic styling of your restaurant? Um, who's behind the restaurant? And it's um, for white owners in Queensland and try to – maybe in a sense give them the benefit of the doubt about their restaurant. I mean, my hypothesis that I was testing is that Some Young Guys is a racist restaurant name. But the thing is I didn't really have to dig too hard to find, to interrogate the intent of the owners. Everything they said about the restaurant name, that it's taken from a line in, what's the movie? It's um, Wayne's World. Wayne's right. World, yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the height of fine comedy in the 80s, which was a, you know, extreme era packed for comedic cinema and highly representative of cultures and, and genders. It was taken from that. Um, there was a video of two of the owners talking about the origins of their name and them talking about how they knew it was problematic, but they still went ahead with it. And... To their credit, they did respond. They didn't respond explicitly to my questions about whether they have received a lot of complaints about their name, whether they've done anything about it. But they did give me a statement, and I think this statement, for me writing the story, it kind of really embodied 
what is wrong with the white restaurant world and when white owners are blind to the insensitivities of the name and how it can really misrepresent or really homogenize and really perpetuate these quite like for want of a better word really white bread representations of a hugely diverse culture on the other side I also spoke with the owner of uh, one of the owners of Madame Nhu the Vietnamese Australian man Min Nguyen <clears throat> and he provided an extremely nuanced explanation about why he would choose to name a Vietnamese restaurant Madame Nhu so Madame Nhu is a first the, the the de facto first lady of South Vietnam in the I want to say the 50s and 60s I might have to fact check that forgive me it's been a while um since I've written the story um she has some pretty infamous quotes where she um talked about the self-immolation Buddhist monks of at that time she described them as a barbecue And that's kind of one of the most notorious quotes that lives on that can be attributed to her. She was, you know, pretty, um, some pretty charged things about the United States and said some pretty charged things about uh, communists as well. She kind of took, she kind of took aim at anybody, but she was, um, she was a source of fascination for Western scholars and journalists for a really long time. And, Basically, what Min Nguyen said, the reason he named the restaurant after her was kind of to reclaim this part of her back. Because in, in, in the foreign press, more in the Western press, she's been portrayed as this like dragon lady. That's what they called her at the time, this dragon lady. But for, but for him, she represented this time of like big social movement in South Vietnam and where there was mass migration of North Vietnamese people to South Vietnamese people and how it really changed the and disseminated certain food cultures across the country and how that time, because of the migration of people from North to South, it helped proliferate the popularization of pho. And I just really liked how he knew that maybe this name was controversial, but he had the words, he had the vocabulary to articulate how he felt and why, and to kind of defend himself, really. It's really incredible. And I've, I've just um, gone back to your article. So she was the de facto first lady from 1955 to 1963. So you were, you were on it. <laughs> um I think that's so amazing, you know, like as you said in the beginning, you know, a restaurant's name is very powerful and it really does say who they are. Of course, it is just a name so it can't say everything. But I think the difference between those responses where one is really offhand and dismissive and and not um, using that opportunity for self-reflection and thus disappointing and deepening the hurt uh it's so different to this really thoughtful, nuanced, embedded in history and knowledge response um, about uh, this other restaurant or well, these restaurants in Sydney. Um, it's so interesting and I think, yeah, the responses, the article is excellent um, and the response that's within the article from uh, the Madam News owner and 
the response that's appended to it from the some young guys uh owners they're so diametric aren't they yeah they they are and i mean look i'm i'm actually surprised this story hasn't been written before and when i was when I was writing the story, I did a lot of, you know, I looked high and low over the internet in Australian food media because I was like, surely someone's touched not just upon this restaurant before or kind of explored the meaning behind their name, but a whole lot of other restaurants in Australia. And it really surprised me that it hasn't been written about before because I know I'm not the only one to think about it. And I think it kind of says a lot about the state of Australian food media where there is like a, there's a, maybe there's, cause there's a, it's a chicken egg thing. There's like a lack of culture for exploring race and representation. Um, there's a risk averseness in the food media landscape. And, you know, that's fueled by, uh, so many things like lack of resource, the digital age, the sh- like the chasing of clickbait. But I really feel this story was long overdue. And the response to the story, for the most part, shows that it really hit a nerve with a lot of people who eat out at restaurants, who consume food media, or are just from, you know, who are just readers of colour like me. Um I just hope that it's not the last of stories of this oeuvre, you know, that, that other writers and hopefully more as more writers of colour enter the fold, that there is this confidence of telling our stories and expressing the thoughts of so many diners and readers of colour in the community. Uh, I agree with all of that, but I would also say it shouldn't just be writers of colour that um, pick up on these things. It's mm. um, yeah, it should be it should be anyone. Yeah, but I think there's something to be said about being a, a, a person of colour that gives you a, a perspective about these issues. Yeah, there's a perspective of being a person of colour of your lived experiences and like you mentioned before just the accumulation of these experiences you've had that informs you and kind of gets under your skin but then it kind of gets onto the page as well that's a really there's a really great book I've read recently called Minor Feelings by Kathy Park Hong and she talks about this exact thing about just this pattern of things that build up over your lifetime when you're told one thing but your feelings are another. Mm. These minor feelings accumulate over time. And when I have seen particular restaurant names in the past that have irked me, um, your first thought as a person of colour is to is to go, nah, that, that can't be it. And then the more you dig, the more you're surprised at, surprise yourself at the quite um, public displays of um, quite public displays of misrepresentations of of, of people of colour. Yeah, you really, you see it a lot and then it's only when 
it kind of gets to a breaking point. Like maybe I did when seeing like a whole bunch of problems, like one day of just seeing a whole bunch of weird press releases past my inbox. And I was like, okay, it's time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's, can we talk about the diversity in food media? Um, you're a founding member of that uh, group. Can you talk about your role? Um, I'm one of the, uh, I think about six or seven co-founders of Diversity in Food Media Australia. And I'm sure if I try to name everyone, I will inevitably miss someone. But we have a website up, um, diversityinmedia.com.au. You might have to. (laughs) Yeah, we'll find it. Yep. (laughs) that lists who we are and um, and which publications we come from or which or whether we're a freelancer. But it kind of, it came about, I would like to say when uh, the whole Bon Appetit thing was happening in 2020. Um, and I think these are all writers that I've respected over time, over the time that I've worked in food media, writers who actively seek out stories um, from migrant communities, from First Nations communities, um, and who, have, who, like me, have seen a, a food media landscape in Australia that was not representative of the story we were telling and the food that we were eating. And it was time to, you know, band together and try to do something about it in baby steps, mind you, because we are all uh, hustling for work <laughs> for the freelancers and also just hustling to um, to do our jobs that we get paid for the volunteer organisation. And the work we do is really to, in small steps, increase the um, voices of people of colour, people with disability, First Nations people, um, people of uh, queer, queer-identifying people, in the food media world because these are voices that, you know, across society don't really get don't really get heard as much and we're missing out on a lot of delicious stories, <laughs> really. It's about diversity in food media is about increasing the voice of um, increasing, increasing the diversity of writers and also the talent, right? So part of the work that um, our, like my colleague Lee Tran Lam has been doing to the diversity in food media account has been profiling different chefs, uh, different writers, um, stylists and photographers who work in food media and highlighting the incredible work they do and full credit, like, like that's all that's all her work. I can't even take credit for it. She does it in her own time and does such a stellar job of it. Um, another thing that Lee Tran has, does, um, has done with um, diversity in food media is released a book of emerging writers published in conjunction with some kind press and just about um, writers who haven't had extensive publication experience before but kind of giving them the opportunity to see their work in published form. The other thing we're working on is a spreadsheet of uh, writers of colour who can, it's like an open, open spreadsheet so editors can check it out and if they want to commission new and emerging writers, they can. We're also going to be doing the same with a, with chefs as well and talent who want to be interviewed if you're like a you know an expert in Burmese food but food media never approaches you because you don't have the money or resource to hire PR you put your name on the spreadsheet and then hopefully an editor sees your stuff 
and wants to interview you and tell your amazing story. In a, in an egg show, we're basically just trying to make things better for for writers who are not white, who are not cisgender, who are not straight, um, uh, who are not able-bodied, and you know, just kind of help them get a leg in with the industry. I absolutely love it. I've got new voices on food, the Lee Tran Lam anthology um, on my desk in front of me always. I think it's it's so great and really, really eye-opening. And, yeah, and it just also feels like it's just the start of something that um, is going to be big and beautiful and continue to create change. And I did not know about the spreadsheet and I'm so excited. I'm just going to be all over that. That's fantastic. Um, uh, Yvonne, would you like to highlight any other writers who are doing great work in this space? Uh, so many, so many. Well, you know, the work you've been doing, Danny, about highlighting Americans uh, in Australia who've been left behind as a result of the pandemic has been largely appreciated and widely read and just you know incredible work on your part not easy work either i can see it so thank you for writing all these stories um there's also um the work of well to my friends colin ho who i play in a band with <laughs> probably a conflict of interest there but as a standalone writer he's incredible he's co-writer a lot of the time is nick jordan and both of them have written well, they kind of, I think, in my recent memory, kind of lifted the lid about bias against, for want of a better word, ethnic restaurants in in a lot of uh, restaurant guides in Australian food media. They wrote about that, I think, back in 2018 for ABC. And I think the story is called One Price for Pasta, Another for Noodles. And it is an incredible and one of the most life-changing stories I remember reading back in 2018 um they've since written an incredible story for counter magazine about restaurant reviews which kind of continues on for that really great work mm, yeah they interviewed me for that and um it is a it is a great it's a great magazine and it's an excellent article man counter magazine it's just yeah it's a uh, I don't know how they managed to make it look so schmick and commission such excellent stories and, yeah, just push out really great work seemingly without the backer of a large publishing organisation, just like hats off to them. There's also there's also smaller um, blogs or um, independent online publications. There's Bushani Ipa who runs Culinary Mag, who's incredible, um, Jess Ho has a newsletter that everyone should subscribe to. Um, Soleil Ho is who's not a small-time blogger. She's a big-time restaurant critic based who writes for the San Francisco Chronicle. Has really done some incredible store, stories about um, everything about race, diversity, the whole bag. And I can't even try to articulate her writing, but it really makes an impact on me every time I read her work. Um, oh gosh, there's just a lot, isn't there? And there I, are a lot of people give, doing great stuff. Yeah. I also want to give a shout out to SBS Food, who have for a long time been doing the work without anyone asking them to. Um, I think 
Farah Sijelu is the managing editor there and they just tell um, – they're so community-focused with their writing and they are kind of the quiet achievers of the food media world, I think, and everyone should go onto their website and read all the stories that they commission and they just do so with such grace and such sound storytelling, I think. Yeah, shout out to SBS Food. Yo, public broadcasters. Yeah, I'm with you there. Um, Yvonne, it's it's been amazing to talk to you. I feel like we could keep going for another hour or two. There's no shortage of things to, to talk about. Is there anything else that you really want to say um, for this, let's call it our first podcast together? <laughs> it is our first podcast together. Yeah. Well, it is, but I feel like it might not be the last. <laughs> I just think, look, it's important to note that for all the work that I do, for all the work that other writers of colour do, it's only so effective if people are willing to listen. And if people aren't willing to listen, I also know that the audience I write for are the people who feel me, who uh, know my experience, um, who read my work with, you know, open eyes. And that, like, I'm, I'm just really grateful for that. And I'm grateful for anyone who supported my work and for anyone who will support future work of other writers of colour who are doing and telling stories that haven't really entered the minds of Australian readers before. So, yeah, and thank you. And thank you, Danny, for having me. Well, honestly, thank you for coming on the show. Um, yeah, I, I think I think what you're doing is really important. I'm really grateful for your time and the, the energy and thought and uh, commitment that you brought to this discussion. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's really important and I'm really grateful. So Yvonne C. Lamb, thank you for being part of Dirty Linen. Thank you, Danny. Keep the linen dirty. Yeah, rough it up. <laughs> <laughs> this is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This.